to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a free virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Hello, this week, Dr. Robert Nassif joins us from Philadelphia for our second podcast together. In our last podcast on ambiguous loss a year ago, we discussed how we can unpack the whys and what-ifs that parents feel when learning their child is neurodiverse and how to see the strengths in our child and be the energetic parent that our child needs. And Dr. Nassif has been running an online support group for fathers that is ongoing through the pandemic. And um, I think he's continued to see clients virtually, but we'll find that out in a minute. Welcome back, Dr. Nassif. Oh, thank you, Daria. Glad to be back. And yes, I'm working virtually through the pandemic. I guess it's like over seven months now and uh, time's gone fast and also slow. Uh, but I've learned a lot uh, living through this as I'm sure we all have. Absolutely, and, and I, I agree with what you said. It's, it's gone by quickly, but also slowly. I mean, a few months had passed and I still felt like it was March. And then I realized it was August. <laughs> And then right. on the other hand, you're like, oh, is this going to come up? But I, I think from the beginning, you know, I had read, oh, the Spanish flu, wave two is bigger than wave one. And so I kind of had in my mind, we're going to be in this for a year or more to start out with, but it, it's still um, getting used to the new normal. That's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, um, I guess it was about a month and a half ago, I saw you in a podcast for special needs in our city, which is in California. And you were talking a lot about the work that you do. And it reminded me that I'd love to do another podcast with you and really focus more on the work that you do with dads. And while we'll cover a few other things this time, um, I thought it would be nice to start out with that. So for anyone who's listening, if you haven't heard the podcast I did with Dr. Nassif last year, I would encourage you to go back and listen because we talked a lot about his experience and his history, and he certainly might refer to that again today, but there's a lot of information on that in the last podcast at affectautism.com. But uh, why don't we just start with the support group that you do and how it started and how it's evolved and where it's at right now. Okay. So the support group that um, I'm co-facilitating is at the Drexel Autism Institute in Philadelphia. The Drexel uh, program has a public health focus. Um, and when I kind of got the opportunity to, to do this, uh, we just jumped on it. I contacted uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Michael Hannon, who's a professor of counseling psychology at Montclair State. University in New Jersey, he has a teenage son on the spectrum. Um, and we started the group a year ago, September. And it really got off to a flying start, like 40 dads signed up right away. 
15 or 16 showed up at the first meeting and uh, we were off and running. And, um, and it's, it's a diverse group, multi-faith, multi-racial, and also includes neurodiverse dads. So we have various points of view and uh, it's been really supportive and energizing and insightful for everybody who's come. It's a drop-in group, so it's always a little different chemistry and, and somewhat different people. When uh, the pandemic arrived, we quickly switched to Zoom, but we started out small with like three or four people, including ourselves as, as the facilitators, but it's grown to 20 and more. And we had a visitor from Toronto. We had people, we had somebody from Seattle, uh, Hawaii, Florida, still primarily Philadelphia, but, but also the Middle East. So people are finding us and uh, we're really happy to be doing this work. Now, I will say that I told people about it in the online parent support group that I do for the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning. So I don't know if some people attended from that yet, but I guess I'll ask now, is it open to anybody if it's open to absolutely anybody who's a father or a grandfather a father grandfather um sometimes uh the mom gets on the mailing list so she can <laughs> press her husband to come so if people want to get on the mailing list uh they can email autism institute at drexel.edu autisminstitute at drexel.edu, or they can simply, um, they can simply email me, robert.nasif at gmail for information. So for those that are listening on audio, if you go to affectautism.com later, and if you watch it on YouTube or through my website, you'll see that I'm sharing the page that uh, is a blog post at Dr. Nasif's WordPress site. And um, it's about this father's autism support group and the email there. And I see that the next one is coming up November 21st. And then again, December 19th from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern time. Right. <clears throat> and that, that collage that people saw uh, is all dads who are in the group. And we'll be having a spring schedule that'll come out in January as well. So if people get on the list now, they will monthly get the link, which we don't put out publicly, but they will monthly get the link uh, for the group. And we'd be happy Fantastic. for people to come from anywhere and everywhere. Fantastic. Um, I, I find it funny that you said sometimes moms will get on the mailing list to press their husbands to to join the group but you know let's talk a little bit about that because last podcast we did you shared your experience as a father and all of the things that you had to go through to work through that needing to fix my son finally going through ex to acceptance and I I know you referred to Stephen Shore who's a self-advocate's uh, three A's awareness I'll let you finish. <laughs> Awareness, acceptance, appreciation, and action. There we go. Um, and you described your process and how there really wasn't a lot for dads. So 
what have you learned in the years of doing this support group that, first of all, gets dads to take that first step to actually come and ask for help? And then secondly, what do, what do they, what do you see happen when you're there together? Because I imagine it's a very different dynamic than a lot of their therapists who are probably predominantly female and with the mothers who are at most of the appointments with their kids um, in general. Mm -hmm. So men often get involved in workshops or groups because their wives or female partners press them to do it. That's very frequent. Others just find it, but it's a frequent story that, uh, and sometimes it's just somebody gets an email forwarded. You know, uh, one of the biggest father's meetings I ever did was in Richmond, Virginia, and it was a snowy night and like over 70 fathers showed up and they were all kind of pushed to do it by their partners. They, in, you know, we kind of cracked up. I mean, I know this is how it works. So I said, how did you get here? And it was quiet. And I said, threats and intimidations and the whole place cracked up. Uh, but the, the, the reason this is true is that it's very hard for us as men to express the softer side of our feelings. Um, Nelson Mandela wrote in his, in his memoir, uh, a boy may cry, a man conceals his feelings. And it's generally like the boy code, even though things have changed, these old traditional ways of being are there. Now, one thing that I frequently point out is that developmental psychology actually tells us that male infants are more emotionally expressive than female infants at the moment at birth. But boys, unlike girls, are conditioned not to cry. Boys are more often left to cry it out, whereas girls are more often comforted. So these are generalities, but boys kind of learn to suck it up from a very young age. And by the time we're six or seven, the world or our parents or somebody is saying big boys don't cry. So, so our feelings are, are on the inside unexpressed, but really when they come out, they're very much parallel uh, in dads as the feelings are in moms. I mean, I really don't notice much of a difference. And when it comes out, the guys don't notice any difference. It's just human, but it's been inhibited. So what we see in the group often is, you know, when we start out, we always encourage people to just talk about what's going right, what, what are they struggling with, what do they wanna talk about, what's important today. And usually it comes up around coping strategies, some form of fixing maybe. And, you know, and, and we, we bring out the problems, but we stress on let's support each other in terms of what, we're, what's, what it's like inside. What, what's it like inside when you hear men talking about all these problems? What, what, what's that like for you? And that helps open up the feeling side. Um, and it, it all comes out. I mean, some meetings, uh, if the first thing that comes out is anger, like one meeting, uh, a guy was like angry about the bus service for his kid. Uh, and we talked about anger a lot of the time. 
another meeting, what came out was being uncomfortable in public. And we talked about shame and embarrassment. So, so things just pop out. And of course, people want resources. Um, in, the, in the discussion, we try to gear around how, how are we really dealing with this? But we also have a, a, an app called GroupMe uh, in which we share resources, we share photos, we share videos of our kids doing stuff. And um, so there's become connections between the dads outside of the meetings. And this started when they were in person, but it's certainly intensified during the pandemic. Oh, that's fantastic. I can imagine that as a dad, you'll have these proud moments and you're so excited to share it with somebody, but maybe your coworkers or people, family members even just don't get it. And mm -hmm. to be able to share that with another dad of an autistic kid, it's like, oh, I totally get it. That's awesome. It's just a different kind of relationship you have when you understand what the other person's going through. Yeah. I mean, it's really, so, so what guys will say is, oh, I am not alone. I'm not the only one like this. And that, that feeling of brotherhood and solidarity is really powerful. And the other piece that's noticed and that we try real hard to create this atmosphere of safety, you could say whatever, um, whatever is said here stays here. Um, be, you know, be open, be honest. That's how you'll get the most out of it. Um, and there's not a lot of places for that especially when you don't have the words for it, your partner's overwhelmed maybe, or talking a lot and you don't feel you have the space. Uh, I'm not saying it isn't there, but, um, and then the world of service providers is primarily female and uh, sometimes not so good at connecting uh, with the father who's also not saying much, you know, so it's a two-way street there. When fathers get more engaged and open up, service providers become more comfortable too and, and address their needs more directly. Now, I, I want to share something that psychologist Dr. Kathy Platzman shared in a podcast we did a couple of weeks ago that I think will resonate with you. And I hope I remember exactly what she said, but she said one of her clients a dad said to her that the moment he got that diagnosis, he felt that for the first time he had the most friends in the world because every other father of a neurodiverse child is now a friend of his in some point. So he felt this sense of community while at the same time feeling that he's overwhelmed and doesn't have time to be connected to any of them. So it was this feeling this irony that was happening within him. Okay. I mean, I don't, I, I think there's a universal experience there, especially with the birth of the first child, the woman becomes a part of the community of moms and the man becomes a part of the community of dads. But now autism is now almost 2% of, of live births, but unless you know, but you feel so alone because you have a child that's so different at the point of diagnosis. Um, so it is, it is a conundrum and being able to connect with other men really can you know, make a big difference. Mm -hmm. I think that 
you know, there's for all of the bad that's been, you know, in the media about social media, it's one of the positive things that it's provided communities for people to connect and sometimes for better or for worse, but if you can search and find the right community and certainly it sounds like your support group has been really helpful to the men who have been in your group. And I imagine there are other dads groups around. Um, it would be nice to see more of that happening. Yes. And, and there's, there's a growing number around and we're part of a loose network being organized by the Washington State Fathers Network. Um, you know, there's a, there's a group in Toronto called Special Dads um for example and th there's a number around the country we're forming a loose sort of network sharing ideas and and resources uh you know to and for each other so i mean i certainly like to see a lot more of this now um do you find that you really have to prompt a discussion like you you talked about how people will give examples of something that happens and, and then when you start to focus on whether it's anger or whether it's shame of the experience that then the feelings open up. Do you ever feel sometimes like there are, because, just because of all of the things that you described in the upbringing of males that maybe a lot of them hold back and aren't as comfortable talking about it um, until others open up or do you have to really prompt that process or does it just sort of unfold? Mostly it just unfolds and, you know, but as facilitators, we both have the experience. I mean, and I, I don't think you have to have a kid with autism to have these discussions, but, um, we both have the experience. We've established a sense of safety and there's enough, there's enough guys that come regularly that contribute regularly that, you know, kind of set the pace and the mood of what's going on. So, I mean, we guide it a little, uh, you know, but um, we don't really have to prompt it. I mean, sometimes we just start with, you know, maybe a particular question. So, um, you know, after the George uh, Floyd murder, you know, we, it was just an overwhelming feeling everywhere. And you know, we just started with that. And, and so interestingly, the, you know, while that impacted, it, you know, the majority of people really, um, it had a certain impact on, on, on those who are parenting kids with autism. In one way, whether you have a child of color or not, um, you know, you realize the danger that, that could occur if your child doesn't obey a police officer or if your child's nonverbal and the police officer doesn't realize it. So, so we hold those worries uh, plus, you know, any racial aspect of what could happen. So the discussion though was really, you know, you know, was really intense. And um, we had this feeling of, of like just, gasping for breath almost. Um, but, you know, like one father in Phil from Philadelphia shared his, his uh, son with autism couldn't understand the curfew. Like, why can't we go out of the house now? And he, you know, his try, he tried his best, but, you know, that became, you know, it was just too hard to understand. Um, so, 
so usually it, it just kind of happens, you know? Um, and, and because we have been doing this every month for over a year, people are used, there's enough guys that are used to it and feel safe to say what they're thinking. Um, and, and it's not that it's all problems. I mean, it's really interesting during the pandemic, um, a couple more than one have said, being home with my child, I didn't realize how much he actually could do or how much she actually could do. Um, and then they even post little videos, you know, that's a play or, or writing their letters or, you know, uh, just hanging out at home. Uh, really beautiful stuff that has been the benefit that relationships have strengthened by being at home. Um, I've heard the same thing. I think just a lot of the stress taken off of the kids that every day, busy, busy, go, 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 just relaxing, being at home and having your safe safety net of your family with you. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it varies though, because you have kids that can't, that have a real hard time without the routine of school. You have kids who can't utilize the technology. Um, so, so, it, the pandemic provides other layers of stress for families. It, it really varies. But for a lot of kids, take away the social pressure and they're in a sense thriving in a different way. So, so we have it all going on. I've been involved in some difficult conversations with autism uh, chapters around the country and, and um, just some really, you know, really severe hardships going on. So for example, in Southern California, there's about a hundred families of kids with autism who are undocumented workers who are afraid to get in the, uh, in the line for food. So autism, the autism society is raising money and food for families that are afraid of deportation during the pandemic. Um, Families in the Southern United States, uh, in Louisiana, have been flooded out of their homes. Um, some really desperate situations. So, so, but the interesting thing is that comes up is that no matter how tough the situation is, when you're talking about families, there's usually something we can do to make a difference. So, so what that might be is it could be something simple like just life skills. Uh, just, you know, teaching your kid how to microwave some popcorn or teaching your kid how to put their clothes in the hamper or, you know. And so moms have been telling me find that they try to find a way to make a difference, make a basic schedule, you know, so your child can see it and know what to expect each day. So, so it's not so much like people just throwing up their hands, uh, but it's finding ways to cope in the situation we're in. Um, and the fathers are, are very much a part of this because they're either mostly they're, they're working from home or they're out of work or, or, you know, and some are going to work in essential jobs. You know, there's various situations, but, but I think the public health crisis in so many cases, has families pulling together, has relationships being more important, and certainly 
that you know is relevant to the dir floor time perspective for sure um i wonder if you have fathers looking to you and your colleague for answers a lot being that your fathers of teenager and adult autistic son, I know that especially some of the newer parents that have a newer diagnosis come into our support group and, and they really look for answers. They, they just want answers. And especially if you've gone through what they're going through, they want to know what did you do, what works, what doesn't. Um, how much of that do you get versus the sharing and, and support from each other? Well, there's some of that each meeting, but it, it's not always Mike and I answering because there's other dads of, of teens and adults. So we don't, we try not to be the source of information uh, in that way uh, as much as possible. But, you know, I mean, we'll give information, but we also try to do some of that offline and keep the meeting, you know, more personal. But in the last meeting, for example, there was a young dad there. He showed up from Houston. Nobody knew him. He had a three-year-old recently diagnosed and he wanted to know, like, should we have another child? What are the chances? So, I mean, I just took a breath and told him what I knew about the science of that. And, uh, but basically, and it's worth repeating here because it, it, it everybody got it. It, you know, I told that that your chances of a second child with autism, you know, are between somewhere around close to 10%, especially if the first child's a boy, but that what's important if you want to have another child is to make this, to be able to say you're going to love this child unconditionally, no matter what. If you can't be there, then hold off. But if you're going to love this child, no matter what, it's going to, no matter diagnosed or not, that child is going to be different than your first child. But if you can't, don't think you can love unconditionally, don't go there. And, you know, there was just this sense of relief, like, okay, there's an answer to that. It's not an easy answer to wrap your mind around, but there was an answer. So, but I think that's the only meeting in over a year that I talked from that perspective as somebody with expertise in autism. I just show up as, as a dad, who knows how to run a support group, <laughs> you know, um, but it was just like, we didn't know if we were going to see this guy again. I mean, I thought about it hard and then I thought, okay, I got to answer this question. <laughs> um, but, and, and, you know, that was just necessary in the moment. So, so we don't neglect a, a burning question. So one, another meeting I can remember, there was a dad really struggling with toilet training so what happened in the chat was other dads weighing in with links and, and other things that had helped them with toilet training. So we didn't devote the meeting to like what we knew about that, but people were sharing it because there were dads at various levels of experience. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, and, and it actually made me think of something else when you said, uh, that's actually something that's never come up in our support group is whether we should have a second child or not. But that makes me think about disagreement between spouses and not only about whether to have 
second children or not, but what about the approaches chosen? Because, you know, oftentimes people coming to ICDL support group where it's about DIR floor time, you know, which is, you know, a, a respectful client-centered relationship-based developmental approach. And the spouse is really stuck on the applied behavior therapy, uh, the behavioral intervention, which, you know, they're completely conceptually opposed to each other, um, especially at the beginning. And I know that's probably not the focus of your support group, but it must be a source of stress for, for parents who aren't really sure which approach, and especially if they don't agree with their spouse on that. And, and even if it's not in your support group, what would you say as a psychologist <laughs> to the situation where spouses are in disagreement of how to handle behavioral outbursts, for instance, or schooling or therapy? Well, I, I try to help them, you know, find some consensus, you know, regardless of the labels or the approaches. I mean, I think good therapy and good parenting in the moment is actually pretty similar regardless of the theoretical model, you know? So um, I, I try to just cut through that. Sometimes I'll, I'll say, look, I'm going to take the higher road. I'm not going to debate these things. Let's just think about what works. Let's think about how does your child, what does your child need to calm down? How can you facilitate that? So I, I try to stay out of those uh, out of those debates. I mean, that doesn't really come up in this group. Um, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, people will bring up whatever they're doing, um, but it doesn't it doesn't tend to focus that way. On on this idea of can we would is it are we at risk to have another child with autism? I've done a fair amount of traveling to other countries and around the country and. I find people ask me the, that question a lot when they have young kids after the first one's diagnosed and they're not done, you know, procreating a family. That's, that's when that's a relevant question, especially with the incidence of autism today, today. Now, once children are older, once people are done having kids, you know, it's a moot point. Um, and it only came up because this was a young father with a young kid who, you know, was, was, you know, they were obviously struggling with this and very worried about it. And he found our group somehow. He didn't even know how, I mean, but all of a sudden he was there and, and like, hey, does anybody know the answer to this? <laughs> um, so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, um, I've heard arguments from both end, like, oh, I have another child, so there's somebody to take care of the autistic sibling when we, the parents are too old. Mm -hmm. And then the other side, Oh, you know, um, what if the second child's autism is, is more debilitating and that mm -hmm. child needs more support than my current child. Um, I don't know if we could handle it kind of thing or, mm -hmm. you know, is that fair yeah. to my first child, etc. There's all different variations of this. I'm, I'm not sure how fair it is to have another kid to take care of their autistic brother or sister. I mean, I, you know, siblings 
generally, you know, want to help, but I don't think we should bring kids into the world to like take care of a sibling as their mission. So, you know, but people think about this different ways and, you know, that's just my thought on that. But um, I mean, I know, you know, with my daughters, I always held my breath until they were talking, reading, writing, you know, and I was kind of assured, okay, this is gonna be a normal trajectory. Uh, I didn't think about not having more, well, I don't wanna say I never thought about it, but but I, I, I wanted life to go on and, uh, but I, I think the statistics now and what we know are, are more, uh, pretend more caution, that's all. But mm -hmm. I don't think uh, people should just stop having kids, you know, just because they have a child on the spectrum, um, if they think they can commit unconditionally. That's the key. And that's a loaded term too, because what does commit mean? And um, I'm, I'm reading a lot of self-advocates postings about how the neurodiversity movement is showing that a lot of the things that we call difficulties and challenges in autism are actually just differences. And in mm -hmm. fact, mm -hmm. autistics are very social and very communicative and all of these things. It's just that it's a different form. So autistics with autistics can communicate very well and neurotypicals with neurotypicals, but there needs to be a translator. So how much support, um, it, it would be good to have that support and education. And maybe if in general, we were all more aware about neurodiversity, then it wouldn't be as scary for parents to think, oh, I have a child who's autistic because there'll be more tools that equip us to raise neurodiverse children. Absolutely. I mean, having neurodiverse fathers in the group, it's very interesting because what fathers face is the same issues, right? There's an interesting, really good book out recently called Why, Why is Daddy Always So Sad by Jude Morrow. I don't know if you've heard of this book. Uh, he's, he's from Ireland and he's autistic and he has a neurotypical son. And the interesting thing in this story is that just like neurotypical dads want their boys to like the things that they liked. So this autistic dad wanted his son to like the things that he liked, but he had to learn to get on the floor and do what his son liked. So it's really, it's a really compelling uh, first person account of the autistic father bonding with the neurotypical boy. Um, so I found that really striking. Oh, yeah, I'll definitely look into that. That's, um, yeah, I mean, usually he, there's he lots about the opposite. To too. Sorry? He might want to talk to you. I can uh, introduce you to him by email. Oh, that would be fabulous. Absolutely. Um, before we run out of time, I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask a question that I get asked in the support group a lot, and um, I'd be interested in knowing your opinion on it. So your son is now 40, I believe you said. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of us with autistic children have, they've, they've gone through certain phases of development, they've regressed, 
they've developed further, they've regressed. And so um, did you find that there was an age where there was a balance or, or a, more of an imbalance? Like, was there more improvement over regression? Because some parents with young toddlers, they hit all the milestones and they're told that everything is neurotypical. And then after a couple of years, they're suddenly not. Um, and then they find that they get the diagnosis. So they experience these periods of regression. And um, it, it's always a struggle for me to know what to say to parents because every child is so different. Yes, I, I don't really have a lot of insight into that. I mean, I've certainly seen, I think the majority can make slow, steady progress through their lifespan. Um, there are, and my son met his early milestones, you know, on time, but then by 15, 16 months, he was falling rapidly behind. So, I mean, sometimes there's, early on, there's, you know, professionals reassure parents, everything's okay, but there may be some red flags there. So I, I can't really speak to that. But I have seen kids that like regress, like when they hit adolescence. And uh, I mean, a friend of mine who's a grandpa saw his, his grandson regress during adolescence. It's been very, very sad to, to see. When I see the videos of this kid at, at 10, 12 years old, and now at 14, he's dramatically different and not in a, in a positive way. Um, I mean, there's a young man in my practice, young adult who stopped talking for a while in his early 20s. Now he just started talking again. It's a great victory. <laughs> but um, I, and I think in that case, he became so anxious about saying the wrong thing that he just stopped talking. I, I don't mm. think he, um, but that's been, uh, and I'll be talking to that family today. I mean, that's just really been wonderful, it, it, the recent comeback of his language. Now, his language is still repetitive and, and still autistic, but it's just great to hear his voice, and, and he can tell you important things he's thinking about or things that are important to them. So, um, so there's all these different things that go on. I mean... It, like you say, it's just like case by case and, and showing compassion and support for people. And there's, there's regression and there's recoupment. And that's, that is part of autism. And I think in the developmental individual differences relationship-based model or DIR, DIR floor time, we always say, let's look at the why behind the behavior. But that's really hard sometimes with a non-speaking child because we can guess and we should guess. And I think that's the danger. Um, I guess this could even be controversial or debatable as well. But I think the danger is that you don't try and guess what's going on and you just sort of let things be um, because yeah. that child must be going through some kind of anxiety or something's going on and we need to try and figure out what's going on and guess and maybe verbally ask the child certain things because they may ignore you or not say anything, but all of a sudden, if you say something that is right, they might move their body differently. 
or they might give some kind of signal that lets you know you're on the right track and at least you can try and problem solve and make things feel more safe for them. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, this idea that behavior communicates, that all behavior is saying something is really important. And so we can, we can guess and we can test it out and we can make environmental changes that might make it clearer what, what's the matter. We can think about sensory things. Uh, I mean, a child that goes to school or, or a day program, we might think about is their new staff, is staff understanding what may have gone on there. You know, it's really important to ask all these questions when, when there's any kind of change like that. Or peers or bullying or a relative that may be saying not very nice things to them behind closed doors, or it could be any number of things. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. There yeah, is um, a reason. Now, we, we might not be able to figure it out, but we sure need to try. And I know that adolescent period is so tricky that they're still learning so much about the brain. And I know um, children that had seizures as, as young children, sometimes during puberty, the seizures come back. And that's quite a traumatic thing for parents and especially for the child to go through. Um, but the parent trying to keep their child safe and not knowing when the next seizure is going to come on, that's, that's very hard. Um, dietary changes. Uh, I know, you know, people have different feelings about whether diet makes a significant impact on a child's behavior. Some people insist that if their child has a certain type of food, that they notice um, a lot of different aggressive behaviors other people know is no difference at all and certainly there's a lot of pseudoscience around that as well yeah but i imagine during adolescence um all of that can impact a child's development with with all of the hormonal changes going on mm -hmm. sure sure i must say that i'm pretty terrified about that because my son is 11 and a half and puberty's right around the corner and i don't know what to expect because i've been the mom of a toddler for so many years and now he's changed from toddler into schoolboy, and he's really interacting more and he's more like, you know, five, six, seven year old now. And to have that little body go through these changes is going to be, uh, I don't, I think dad's going to be taking over a lot more than mom during well, that one period. Of the, one of the things I've seen over through my career really uh, is that when the boys on the spectrum, become, get into adolescence, they start looking to their dads more. They need their dads more. They identify more. So it, it's, it's, some of this is just going to naturally occur be, between your son and his dad. That, that's what I've seen over and over. And, and, you know, so if a dad's been, been feeling a little out of the loop, He's going to have a great opportunity to get right into it because the boys is going to be looking to him, going to be going to want to spend more time with them. That that's what I see routinely. Yeah, it's great. Um, and I'll, I'll just make a quick mention to a podcast I did quite a while ago now, but it was on um, gaming and it, another father of an adult autistic uh, DIR floor time expert, Mike Fields, who is really using gaming with autistic 
groups. So, you know, you can choose the character and you can choose who you are and what your powers are. And going into that fantasy world has been so helpful for a lot of the uh, groups that he's done with neurodiverse kids. So I know that's what my husband's looking forward to because he's into all of those fantasy games, Dungeons and Dragons, Warhammer and everything, you name it. Uh, the day that our son can get to the point where he has enough patience and focus and attention to follow the rules of a game and, and get into that, uh, my husband's going to be the happiest dad in the world. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, that would um, be great. That, that, that will definitely be great. And then I may or may not learn because right now I don't know anything about any of those games and I really we don't have interest. Have but choice. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, I might get sucked in. That's for I mean, sure. I moms being dragged into the video game world by their kids who, who want to play with them. He'll teach you if he wants you to play with them. Oh, he's tried to get me into this Mario Kart. I now know all the names of all the characters in it, but I, I just keep saying, uh -huh. I get too dizzy looking at the screen. Uh, I can't do that. I'm, I'm putting it off. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for everything today. Is there any, any last minute things that you wanted to share while I share the screen with your website again before we sign off? Is there anything else you wanted to share about dads, about parent groups, about your experience or... Well, I mean, the, like what you just showed, diversity is awesome. That's just mm -hmm. been a really powerful experience during this summer of, of this resurgent movement, not just in the U.S., but, you know, somewhat globally around uh, racial violence and, and a, a movement for social justice. Mm -hmm. And I guess the other thing I would mention that, that I've been involved in is, is pointing out the racial disparities in the diagnosis and treatment of children of color who are routinely diagnosed later and often misdiagnosed and who have, and, and they and their families have less access to services. And I know that the DIR floor time is doing stuff to make uh, floor time more accessible. I think this is really important, uh, you know, and, um, you know, it's a particular passion of mine. Uh, my son is a man of color and he's really been teaching me a lot just thinking about my life with him. There's been uh, incidents with him and the police that fortunately all ended well, uh, but you never can count on that um, in the world we live in. Um, and he's always gotten good services. And I think part of the reason is because I'm white and educated. So uh, I don't think that should be the case. I think every child should get the state-of-the-art services, uh, mm -hmm. everything they need. And um, that's just really important to me. Um, and obviously keeping my son safe and happy, you know, remains important. I haven't been able to see him in person during the pandemic. Uh, his day program has been closed um, and I'm at risk to visit his home, uh, but I do talk to him on uh, FaceTime and I'll tell you, he's been happy and healthy the whole time. And um, so, you know, that's just the stuff that's important to me at the personal and societal level. Um, so, you know, I'll kind of wrap up there. 
Yeah, and I will point out that uh, Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning has been instrumental in getting insurance coverage for DIR floor time in New Jersey just recently through Medicaid. And it, it has been a mission because uh, a lot of families that otherwise wouldn't have had access to DIR floor time can now get it covered. So um, I know that's that's been something that the play project has been working on as well through throughout Michigan, Ohio, Illinois. And so, um, you know, slowly spreading the word to get developmental approaches accessible to everybody too. And um, you brought up some amazing points here. I've put up Dr. Nassif's WordPress site here. You can see different blog posts that he's done. You can sign up for his mailing list. And I've been on the mailing list for a couple of years. Uh, he doesn't spam us. We just get a notice when you have a, a blog post or an interesting appearance coming up. So I'll encourage everybody to check that out. And you can look at what we talked about today at affectautism.com. I'll write up a blog with some links to some of the things we mentioned. And um, if you are interested in attending, if you are a dad or grandpa or a wife of someone you, you think would benefit from the support group, do check it out. And I hope we'll get to speak again. Um, hopefully the pandemic will be over sooner than later, Dr. Nassif. We can only uh, hope for that. It's beyond our power, but um, stay safe. You too. Be well, and uh, we'll meet again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.